it was a very important feature of the Kautilyan army that it was recruited from Brahmin, Kshatriya, Vaishya, and Shudra, Varna, all of them. So that was a way in which the entire country had stakes in the security and in the army that kept the nation protected and kept the nation together. Indian, uh, ancient India had a navy. So did it have a navy or did it not have a navy? Interestingly enough, the text frequently refers to fighters in water. They are called the Nimnayodhin. And they are distinguished from those people who fight on dry land. So you see that there is a separate set of navy soldiers. The Durg and the Dand together gave the Mauryan army, gave the Mauryans the kind of protection they needed, the kind of base they needed to spread themselves out and to make themselves more and more powerful. And Kosh Mulohi Danda, that is treasury, is the basis of the army. Namaste to everyone. I will start with explaining to you about Durg and Dan. So what is Durg? Durg is the fortified city, the fortified capital of the kingdom where the king lives. And for this state, for the state as it existed during that time, this is of crucial importance because this is the security also of the king. And remember, Swami is the most important prakriti. We always have to first think about the Swami when we are thinking about the Saptami state. Therefore, the Durg then was a very, very important and critical structure. The Dan is, of course, the army. We will look at the Durg first because it's of less importance and we can, you know, just consider it in five minutes. The uh, Durg is supposed to be a series of forts, one in the center where the king lives and also a series of forts around the frontier. These are envisaged as of four different types and how are these types organized according to geography. So the, you have uh, water forts, you have mountain forts, you have desert forts and you have forest forts. All these have been described in short and uh, they are to be built in a certain way depending on the terrain. So a water fort has to be built differently, a hill fort differently, hill or mountain fort differently, desert and forest fort also differently. Unfortunately, in the Arthashastra itself, specific details of how to build these forts is not there. Although if any of you remembers, the forts built in the water by Shivaji Maharaj are still extant and still famous. So you do know and we have discussed that many of the Portillian principles have been followed much later by many of our esteemed rulers later, whether it be the Vijayanagar kingdom or whether it be Shivaji Maharaj. So also cast your mind onto the map of India. When you look at the map of India, you see that the peninsular shape is all surrounded by water. So obviously, if we have to stop the enemy from entering the frontiers of the country from all sides, if you look at the southern, eastern and western parts, there have to be water forts. And then of course, we have the Himalaya in the north, so there, there have to be mountain forts. And in the west, there are a series of deserts. Today, uh, some, some of it has become Pakistan, 
but you uh, think of the current desert in baluchistan which was a part of the mauryan empire cholistan in bahawalpur etc and thar desert which is still there so to the northwest we had also a number of deserts and forests are were of course always there and there are special forests in the northeast so the description of these forts the different kinds of forts which are to protect the country which are to protect the janpal does seem to have a kind of relationship with the geography of the indian subcontinent apart from this of course there is the man made structure of the fortified capital the natural frontiers are to have some kind of use of the forces of nature and uh, the geographical features but the man made fort in the capital is very very clearly to be made according to certain measurements and according to certain precepts laid down and there is an entire chapter on this and uh, you can read uh, the chapter of the arthashastra and know each and every details each and every detail of the way this fort was to be constructed you know things like even the rampart the size of a rampart the fort on top so all the turrets etc so all of you who have a special interest in military history or the history of forts would be very interested in reading this particular chapter now mauryan forts today are not extant because all those forts either they were built up and other kingdoms came and built their own things over it or they have simply disintegrated however in one place that is near lake sudarshan there is an extant fort and that is a mountain fort of the mauryans perhaps the only example which is even slightly standing i will have occasion to mention lake sudarshan again so just flag this and keep this in mind now uh, we are going to uh, look at apart from the fortified capital the dand so i will just end this section by saying that today a durg is not all that important to our military security or to our military strategy since the ways of holding the borders have changed those ways do not depend on forts modern border protection is done in totally different ways so perhaps uh, forts are something which are of interest in terms of uh, you know people who are interested in history and in the military past etc but we will uh, go on to looking at the army the army is something we still have the army is something which is still very very important and I'll, as i discuss the army or the dand with you i will keep telling you about how we can or cannot apply certain of those principles to things that are happening today now the army consisted of of course elephants chariots cavalry and infantry and uh, just as an aside you know that the game of chess originated in india and just think about the way the game of chess is organized and the way you have the pawns elephants cavalry etc all those come from the traditional understanding of and the traditional organization of the army in the indian subcontinent so uh, 
the army was recruited from all four varnas remember last time i had discussed with you that it was a very important feature of the kautilyan army that it was recruited from brahmin kshatriya vaishya and shudra varna all of them so that was a way in which the entire country had stakes in the security and in the army that kept the nation protected and kept the nation together these four uh, uh, types of elephant uh, infantry cavalry chariot and elephant flag i will return to it because i will show you how these divisions were organized once i give some general remarks about the army the background i'll come back and show you some specific details now uh, we have the standing army of these four types which we'll discuss in detail later but what uh, other way was there of classifying the troops so there were uh, six kinds of troops one was the mol bal bhrit bal shreni bal mitra bal amitra bal and atavi bal so what is the mol bal mol means mool base basic so this was the standing army this was the army which was always there with for which there was no you know because some of the divisions in the army were temporary but this was the basic standing army which never changed and these were recruited from the hereditary families which were very close to the king this was the core the absolute core of the army and if you read my book urnabhi you will see that there is another dynasty which comes after the mauryas which is the sungas the sungas were the hereditary senapatis of the mauryans and this core of the army was made up of sungas and their loyalists in certain inscriptions they are referred to as the seniyas of the mauryans it is a different matter that one of the sungas senapatis pushyamitra sung got so tired of the weak mauryan king that he overthrew him and established the sunga dynasty but at the time of the mauryans the sungas were one of the examples of this hereditary families close and loyal to the king who were part of the molbal and uh, you know this molbal has the same interests as the king totally and there is nothing which is separate between the molbal and the king apart from the molbal uh, you have the bhritbal and the bhritbal is recruited it is recruited from the natives of the land they are not they don't form the standing army but they are recruited as and when they are needed so bhrit is people who work for payment so these people work for payment and they are recruited as and when wanted what are the other kinds of troops there was also a shreni bal what is a shreni bal i told you about guilds the guilds which were made up of different professions so you would have a goldsmiths guild a leather workers guild a textile guild a caravan guild etc now all these guilds also had a different bits you know kind of little standing armies of their own and in times of need they would go and join the army and fight so these were provided to the king and to the kingdom as and when needed otherwise they were part of the shreni so that's why they are called shreni bal now mitra bal is troops belonging to your allies a mitra bal is if you borrow hire or purchase your mercenaries a mitra bal is mercenaries which you can uh, borrow hire 
or sometimes conquered troops were also forced to fight for you. All these are Amitrabal. Then you have Atavibal. So you remember I told you that the Atavics or the people who lived in the forest were also recruited into the army. So these are those Atavibal. So remember then these six types of troops. An interesting little note over here. There's always been a controversy about whether or not Indian, uh, ancient India had a navy. So did it have a navy or did it not have a navy? Interestingly enough, the text frequently refers to fighters in water. They are called the Nimnayodhan. And they are distinguished from those people who fight on dry land. So you see that there is a separate set of navy soldiers. There is, There are people who fight in the water. There is also a Navadhyaksh with some boats under his command. But from the evidence, many historians have cautioned us not to get carried away and think that there was some huge navy and that there was some huge fleet. There were maybe uh, small ones in the rivers. Not they did not uh, perhaps the navy did not venture out into the open seas. But uh, those who violated, say, port regulations or the water trade routes, etc. But we'll have to keep in mind the fact that India is surrounded by water and there is no doubt about the fact that many enemies would have come through the water. So I think a little bit more of research, much more research indeed actually is needed on the navies of the ancient past. We know about the navies of the Cholas, for example, but the navies of the ancient past, not enough research has been done and this is a fruitful area of research. This is the different types of uh, troops, the navy. Now I'll move to the ranks in the army. So, and uh, an officer who is in charge of 10 units is called a patika. Of 10 patikas is called a senapati. Now here, please note that I am using the word senapati in a very confusing way because there is also a senapati who is at the head of the army. So yes, this little confusion does exist. And it appears to be because of the um, uh, earlier gurus who had given certain names and certain ranks in earlier times. The amalgamation, the, um, uh, the kind of uh, reorganization done by Cortelia in his text, this seems to be a remnant of certain past gurus. So um, you have... Uh, Ten Senapatis is called a Nayak. These are the different kinds of uh, ranks in the army. And uh, our Senapati, I mean the Senapati who is at the head of the army, that Senapati is actually part of the inner council, remember, and he is one of the most important people in the entire kingdom because he is the closest advisor of the king and he is the person in charge of the security of the kingdom. So there is, uh, uh, when I talk to you about baccalaureates and I talk to you about formations, I'll tell you about how all the people who were uh, charioteers and who headed chariot divisions and who headed cavalry divisions, how they were organized. I'll tell you that in a bit. Now, this huge standing army, so many soldiers. So was it that uh, they just did their own thing and when it was time to fight, then they just came and fought? No. Training in the army was of crucial importance. And there are 
many, many training texts of the ancient past. Warfare in ancient India, training in ancient India is a topic in itself. There is a book, a, a text called the Dhanurved. So the Dhanurved, and you know, uh, some uh, PDF of the Dhanurved are also easily available on the net. So any of you who are interested can just Google it or just ask me later and I'll send you the PDFs that I have. It makes for very interesting reading because it tells you what kind of yodhas were there, what were their different levels of capabilities, what could they do, how were they organized, how were they trained. So there was a very big science of training, of weapons behind all the fighting that was done. And I have, you know, in my book series, I do try and put in a lot of these authentic things. So if you read Urnabi 1 and Urnabi 2, you will also read about the army and uh, even more in uh, Urnabi 3 which is being written as we speak. So even our, the Artishastra, which is not a war training manual, it is a manual of statecraft, but it mentions the importance of training. And in the Indic system, there were training manuals, which were kind of uh, all derived from the Dhanurved, and uh, there were some other texts also, some of which survive only in part. So the importance of training was emphasized and there was also regular inspection. There was regular inspection. Remember the Dincharya of the king? And there was a portion of the king's time every day kept and taken out for the inspection of the army. So they were trained, they were inspected, their fighting qualities were checked at after very, very frequent intervals. So what does this mean? That they were always kept on their toes. See, the Mauryan period was by and large, after they established their entire uh, kingdom, a peaceful one. So many, many wars were not fought. There was, a, there was one big war which was with the Seleucids. So the story of the Mauryan Seleucid wars has been given in many of the Greek and Roman sources. And that was also a very different kind of fight. A lot of it was psychological warfare and, you know, camping over there and really fight, the, the real fight was minor. And most of the time, the army would be used to maintain security, to maintain the peace in the country and to maintain the peace along the trade routes. But to keep this as a fighting fit instrument, there was action, there was checking all the time. So the army was kept on its toes. It was not some braggle tale of people who have just got together. But you know, there was this whole, you know, we've read about the armory, we've read about the uh, when we the chariots and the department of forces, there was an armory. There were, and when I tell you a little more about the coach today. Then I'll tell you how there were certain storehouses only for things related to defense, for things which were needed for the army, things which were needed to make weapons. There were storehouses especially for that. Now, what are the other important things about the army? The loyalty of the troops is of great importance. And therefore, they have to be under constant surveillance. So, Portilla is, he believes surveillance to be the answer to everything. The spy system, the system of checks and balances within the administration and even the army was always surrounded by 
the secret service and spies. So what kind of spies did they use? They used artisans, actors, singers, and remember those Rup Jivikas I told you about who are different from the Ganikas, the prostitutes, the Rup Jivikas. So these women were with the army. So artists, artisans, singers, Rup Jivikas, they were always hanging around the army and the soldiers and many of them were spies. So they kept an eye on what each soldier or each of the Nayaks or Patikas or the Senapati, what they were doing. So everyone was spying on everyone else. We know that there was a special armory. That armory was in the uh, under the control of a special adhyaksh. He was responsible for getting the weapons manufactured, for storing them properly so that they would not deteriorate through heat, moisture or insects. Details are given about how these storehouses should be built to do that. And each weapon is to bear the king's emblem. And uh, this gives you an insight into the micro level of organization which went into everything. Now we come to weapons. What, what kind of weapons were there? We know of the usual things like, you know, swords, spears, bow and arrow. There are certain weapons which we understand very well, but there are certain very fascinating and intriguing massive war weapons mentioned in the Arthashastra. And there are certain commentaries on the Arthashastra which explain what these weapons are like, because these are weapons of the past. We don't have any examples of them today. So, for example, <clears throat> uh, there was a battering ram for battering down an enemy's fortification. So this was called Paripur Abhighatika. Then you must keep in mind that these were also organized in four ways. Yantra or machine, Ayud or weapons, Avaran or shields and Uktaran or different other Akutumos. A large number of machines are described. And the principal purpose of these appears to be to throw huge stones at the enemy. All these are of indigenous origin and design. And uh, well, like I told you, we, uh, we uh, my illustrator who you met last time and me, we have uh, recreated for you two or three or four of these weapons of the past. And please do come to model and see. Some of them were to throw stones. Others were to throw a protective cover. Others were to hide soldiers in it so that they could rain down bows and arrows while going through the middle of the enemy army. So they were all made in different ways. Some of them were mobile. And indeed, this in itself is a very, very fascinating subject. So again, for people who are interested, not only the Arthashastra, but I will also recommend another book to you. This is called uh, Yantras in Ancient India. This is by V. Raghavan. Again, freely available on the internet. It explains some of these weapons from the Arthashastra. It also has certain explanations from different sources. The kingdom, the king, the Vijigishu, cannot be a loose cannon. Okay, I'll send the army there, I'll send the army there, I will do anything. No. Portelier, in fact, uses the army as one of the instruments of state power, one of the instruments to achieve the national interest. And the national interest of both Palan 
and also expansion so for that he has to think of conquest now this is again a question which has engaged philosophers through the ages through cultures across cultures so what was what is war what is conquest what kinds of conquest are there what is the army the dand to be used for for protection yes but protection is a very dynamic concept is protection sometimes served by you going out and stopping someone before they attack you what is the meaning of protection what is the meaning of expansion so there is a certain thinking behind all this what is this thinking so there are three kinds of conquerors in the um, uh, kind of uh, explained in the arthashastra who are these three kinds of conquerors the first is the dharma vijayi this king makes conquest for the sake of glory and who is satisfied only by submission of the kings he doesn't want to uh, exploit them in any way or he doesn't say that you do this or he doesn't take their kingdom into his own he is a dharma vijayi then there is a lobha vijayi what does he do he is out to obtain land money or both then there is an asur vijayin this asur vijayin is like a demon he makes conquest seizes land money people sons wives slaves kills people and you can be very sure that this asur vijayin this is not encouraged by the arthashastra this is completely beyond the pale the desirable vijigishu is the one who is a dharmajain you know after the king gets the submission of his enemy he is supposed to treat him with honor we have all heard of that very famous story of sikandar and poras and poras says as the losing king treat me with honor treat me like a king so this is a basic indic philosophy of war and conquest no one is to be humiliated no one is to be decimated and the kingdom of the losing king should not be hurt in any way you have to regard the feelings of the other kings and of the other subjects there has to be compassion so this is what dharm vijay is all about now these were the three kinds of conquests now to achieve these conquests what should you do at what time should you go at how should you attack what should your strategy be all these things are also given in the arthashastra i mean how to plan how to plan all this the vijigishu has to plan his conquest according to the circumstances prevailing at the time so you know it depends on how much strength he has how much strength his enemy has he has to weigh very very well the different consequences of going for a war if you fight a weaker king no problem you're going to win if you fight a stronger king you're going to lose why should you do that what are the consequences is it necessary to fight is it that if you don't fight then that king is going to completely decimate you so you have to fight out of self preservation what about a king with whom you are at parity so there are very specific and very detailed solutions given basically a very practical consideration and analysis of the situation and the what are the benefits to the kingdom what is the benefit to the national interest so always but always 
the national interest is to be kept in mind. So what is the impact? Do you get any benefit? Are you going to get hurt? Are your people going to get hurt? All these things have to be thought of. And uh, when I talk to you about uh, international relations and relations with other things, I will return to this topic and I will speak a little more about how these fights are to be decided. Now, suppose you have considered all these issues and you've decided you're going to fight. Then you have to, before you go off, you start for a conquest, then again, you have to consider a lot of things. First, you have to see that none of the seven prakritis suffer from any calamity. So you see, this is the importance of the Saptanga state theory. In every calculation of the state, the seven prakritis come into play. So while the king and the senapati and the inner council are sitting and debating whether they should go and fight with this neighboring king or not. So what do they discuss? They look at all the seven prakritis in their own kingdom. They see, uh, is my administration good? Is the king fine in fighting settle? How is the Kosh? Do we have enough money? How is the army? How are in fact even the allies? Because Mitra is also one of the Prakritis. So you have to consider all of them. So the Vyasan or calamity of one constituent may render all the other seven Prakritis completely inefficient. Suppose you don't have enough money, then you're not going to be able to fight. Suppose your army is not fighting fit, then you can march as much as you like, but you're not going to win. In, you know, uh, the practical advice of Kautilya is that before starting on any expedition or conquest, the Vijigishu must satisfy himself that he is superior in all essential respects to the enemy against whom he proposes to march. There are different strategies given. Suppose you have an enemy who is attacking you and you are weaker than that enemy. Then what to do? That is a separate issue. I will come to that when we uh, look at uh, Mitra. But if you have, you have decided to fight, you must analyze everything and come to the conclusion that I am superior in all essential aspects to the enemy. Then only should you start, uh, start fighting. So, you know, the king here is very important because the Senapati is there, right, to look after the kingdom. But it is the king who provides the leadership. What should the king have? The king should have utsah, which means energy, bravery, personal drive. He should have prabhav. And he should have good counsel and diplomacy, that is mantra. So, utsah, prabhav, and mantra. All these three things should be there. Different gurus and different rishis have said different things about which is important. For Kautilya, he thinks that mantra or good counsel from your inner counselors is the most important thing. When you are going to go for a fight and go for a conquest, you should always have very good counsel. And what else should you take into account? You should take into account Desh and Kal. Desh and Kal. Never forget these two things because in Indic philosophy, in Indic thinking, all theory is fine, but all theory has to be tested against the very important baseline of the Desh and Kal. What are the circumstances? What is the Desh of terrain? What, is, what are those circumstances? And Kal, what is the season? What is the time? And these two can make a huge difference. If you march against a king uh, during the monsoon, you're going to lose. 
and you have to keep into account a lot of things about the terrain a lot of things about the time and it is for this that the mantra shakti the people who give you advice are very important you must also remember that when the king is out on an in, on an expedition there should not be any insurrection in the kingdom itself what if the king has gone off to fight with someone and in the meantime somebody over here takes over his kingdom so you have to be very very careful about this and the vijay issue is advised to do the lots of advices given to kautilya given by kautilya suppose the vijay issue thinks that uh, the yuvraj or the senapati or one of the amatyas is planning to have a uh, conduct an insurrection against the king and take over the kingdom then there are ways given about how to deal with this suppose you have to fight you what do you do with this problem so all these problems are raised solutions and advice is given and uh, remember that uh, you have to think of the gain that you will get without it there is no fighting then the vijigishu considers all these factors and he decides when should be uh, when they should fight and certain specific seasons are given margshish for long duration fight chetra for medium duration fight jest for short campaign etc these are the seasons which are given for campaigning and since we were uh, you know a technology was different and we were much more um, nature was much more powerful then we had very few things to fight against nature so we had to go through uh we had to be under the domination of the forces of nature to some extent so all these things are discussed and the right season to do whatever the king wants has also been given in terms of different pieces of advice so now the king has considered everything the army is in place and the king has started off on the conquest the season is also right for instance the king has started off on the conquest so what happens now how is the practical fighting to be done the practical fighting to be done is uh, you know uh, the army starts off and moves to the place where the base camp for the fight has to be set up now this base camp has a number of chapters spread on it where do you set up the base camp what kind of terrain should be there what kind of surrounding uh, uh, security issues should be taken into account how it should be organized where should each and everything be where should the king sleep where should the horses be the chariots be the food the cook everything is given in a very you know there's a map of that base camp made the arthashastra gives you a kind of map of that base camp so that base camp is made and the king and the army set themselves up in that base camp so what happens then how do they actually start fighting now for this you have to i have to tell you certain things about different units i told you that there are cavalry units chariot units and elephant units so what is the basic cavalry unit for the basic cavalry unit there is one horse and that one horse is surrounded by soldiers so i will show you a few pictures uh like i said the illustrations are still being made but i will uh, show you some pictures there is a round circle in the center that is a horse and can you see 
the others the soldiers which have to stand around the horse so this is the basic cavalry unit then if we go to the chariot unit how does it work exactly the same way there is one chariot in the center and there are cavalry units all around the chariot so what does that mean with one chariot you have six horses and 36 soldiers organized in the same way so this small one this book that this is a book by rangarajan l rangarajan i have recommended this book to you before it is something that gives you abstracts so kangle gives you all the details and the context this gives you abstracts i will be using more abstracts from this so can you see the small one can you see this is the this is the way the elephant unit is and the chariot unit is organized what about soldiers soldiers were they used to stand in rows and there was a certain distance specified between them because you know they needed some space especially those who were archers needed more space so they were uh, in certain specified distances and that distance was how much um, space you needed to uh, for the bow and arrow because you have to pull the bow and then leave the arrow so that you need space for that you know you can't stand absolutely pushed together so that was how soldier uh, archers stood now when soldiers stood there was a little distance between them specified depending on whether they were fighting with sword swords spears or lances but very intricate and complicated measurements and arrays and ways in which you have to stand up given and it's not one there are multiple descriptions of the different ways in which to stand so of these basic units there were arrays were formed what are arrays these are the ways in which they were formed for battle so how were they formed the arrays for chariots and elephants were identical all of them were in three rows of three each so that is nine so you remember since each chariot was supported by five cavalry units and each cavalry unit had one mounted warrior and six foot soldiers the minimum array consisted of nine chariots 45 mounted warriors and 270 foot soldiers these numbers are given in the arthashastra in chapter 10 now these arrays were put together in different formations what are formations one array in the center one to the left flank one to the right flank then one to the left wing and one to the right wing so i'll give you just one example of this this is the way it was done so these are descriptions of there are many other ways also in which these uh, battle formations can be done so there are types of battle formations described once the army is in formation then it has to move and this is the most fascinating thing of all there are ways described about how to move you can move in a straight line you can move like a snake you can move in a circle or you can move in a completely dispersed manner and these are all described in chapter 10 and these are the ways in which the army would move to attack the enemy army stores resources what you need not just weapons but in terms of food in terms of shelter in terms of everything else 
all those things are explained as far as the dand is concerned so you see that in using these principles and the formidable resources of the morrens the morren standing army was a very very scary one so uh, justin says that uh, the standing army of chandragupta was 60000 troops now 60000 is a huge number for those days the seleucids who came to fight him the seleucids also had um, their army is also very interesting one i wish i had time sometime to explain to you what the seleucid army which clashed with the morrian army was like so read book 2 i've written a lot about it in book 2 so uh, the seleucid army was also almost up to the morrian army standards but a little bit less but you see the morrian army was also used dispersed along the entire kingdom to protect all different frontiers and parts of the kingdom and trade routes and everything so like i have had i keep repeating the army trade routes and agriculture these were at the basis of the formidable prosperity and power of the morrian kingdom and the durg and the dand together gave the morrian army gave the morrians the kind of protection they needed the kind of base they needed to spread themselves out and to make themselves more and more powerful so this is as far as the dand is concerned now i will go on to the kosh the kosh as we know is the sixth prakriti i can also tell you that you know i have written a lot of articles on these subjects for uh, swarajya magazine i wrote a historical column between 2016 and 2018 so a lot of what i am telling you today or some of it at least you will be also able to find if you go and read the archives of the swarajya magazine i told you that kosh is more important than dan because it is on the kosh that the resources for keeping a standing army or going for a conquest etc depend and kosh mulohi danda that is treasury is the basis of the army kosh is important also in terms of the larger philosophical underpinning of chanakya because what does uh, he say, say, say he has said that dharm arth and kaam are the three aspirations of society and this is what we want to achieve so he says also that all works of dharm and kaam can be done only if you have the resources so you have to have kosh to achieve the aims of dharm and kaam arth is at the basis of dharm and kaam so what has he said in book 1 he says arth mulohi dharm kaam divi so you see this is the i would say thrust of the understanding of kautilya that is why this is the arth shastra because for him arth is at the base of dharm as well as kaam now let's go to the kosh or the treasury so the treasury consisted of all the resources of the kingdom and remember they were kept in so many different storehouses remember the sannidhatri he was one of the major uh, most important officials of the kingdom and the sannidhatri maintained all these treasure houses all these kosher's including a secret one and this was where all the treasure resources everything of the kingdom were actually kept before i i will uh, tell you in great detail what were these resources you know what was the ay sharir and the vyay sharir and the ay mukh but before that i'll give you a little bit of a base of uh, about uh, the budget of the morrens so remember the samahartri 
who was a cross between the home minister and the finance minister so uh, the samahatri prepared the budget so the whole year was of 354 days entries were made with reference always to the king's reign year so this is the second year of chandragupta's reign or the third year of chandragupta's reign etc and this is standard practice for all reigns for everywhere it is done with reference to the king's reign year uh, this was called the rajvarsham it coincided with the work year ending on the full moon day of ashar which today we know as guru purnima that was the end of the financial year of the moguls so the samahartri had to fix what he had to make a budget and he had to fix the amount of revenue which could all be collected from the heads of income then he had to also uh, arrange the income under the aymuk or sources so i'll tell you about the ay sharir and the aymuk and uh, these make for very interesting reading and these also will uh, give us a sense of the way economies have changed we uh, there was also the presentation of the budget and always the samahartri had to try and see that i is more than vyay so vyay is what its expenditure so there is an ay sharir and ay muk and there is also a vyay sharir vyay sharir means the body of expenditure ay sharir means the body of income so always he had to make sure that i is more than vyay so that something goes into the treasury and the kingdom has some kind of sources and bases and it can uh, have a kind of uh, uh, basic protection against calamities of the future and indeed the mauryan kingdom did see the calamity of drought so this uh, ay sharir being more than the vyay sharir is uh, very very important it's very very fascinating and humbling to see that so many financial concepts are there in the arthashastra you know for example there is a concept of a revenue estimate there is concept of accrued revenue outstanding revenue income expenditure balance etc or the uh, controller and auditor general of today this aksh patel adhyaksh checked the accounts verified the accounts and was always ready to you know uh, always inspecting the accounts which were sent in by all departments to see whether there is any problem with those accounts or not and in case there were problems either because of corruption or because of something else then there are very very many things prescribed as to what is to be done in case there are problems so a budget estimate of the revenue was made at the beginning of the year with reference to different areas of economic activity then uh, if a budget estimate was made and the samaharta gave it to the department then that department had to actually given that much of revenue this was this had to be strictly adhered to by the department heads so incomes were also classified as out current outstanding delivered from other sources expenditure was classified into four types day to day after fixed intervals of time and unforeseen expenditure so the after all these were taken into account there was a balance which was carried forward and you have to just keep in mind that much most of these resources were in kind which is why we needed the sanidhatri and the whole list of stores uh, in my article which uh, which i wrote for swaraj i have made a comparison 
with the modern heads in the annual financial statement of the union budget and those which were there in the modern budget i don't have time for it right now but do go and read it again you know you will find many commonalities there are some things in human existence which don't change there are some things which you always need so you will find many commonalities in spite of the fact that there are also of course many many differences now let's get to the actual sources so what was the what was economic activity all about economic activity was varta now this varta this varta was of three types krishi pashupalan and vanijya krishi is agriculture pashupalan is animal husbandry and vanijya is commerce please note that here you don't have a lot of income coming in from arts and crafts remember that karu kushila karm so that karu kushila karm at the time and the service sector was not that developed so suppose you know you have pottery you not you not going to have huge factories of pottery so localized whatever people need little bit some made so the state did not get that kind of income from it which it got say from export duty or from agriculture etc etc again to remind you of the interconnectedness of all the different prakritis all this business activity was rooted where in the janpad in the people in the country it is the people who did all this so all this was rooted in the janpad there was also a difference between state ownership of land and private ownership of land the kind of uh, resources that the state got was sita which is from state and which is state enterprises bhag which is agricultural tax share given to the ruler for protection remember our sec uh, session on swami and uh, the swami was there to protect everyone and to guard against matsanyaya and in return the people gave him bhag shad bhag which means one sixth of the produce this was bhag then this there was kar which is cash uh, tax payments and then there was something called bali this bali is occasional levies of tax now i am going to go into a uh, kind of uh, details of what i was telling you about the ai sharir what is the ai sharir this is the body of income what does this body of income consist of this is given in chapter 6 of book 2 so the sources of the uh, the uh, you know the ai sharir is there is the fort what is the fort the fort here stands for the city so what do uh, the what does the state get from the city it gets customs duties fines money from the mint master passports money from spirituous liquor animal slaughter yarn oil ghee sugar gold markets prostitutes gambling buildings artisans artists temple superintendent etc this part of the ai sharir is called the fort then there is one other part of the ai sharir which is called the country what do you get from the country this is the countryside agricultural produce share tribute tax money from the ferries river guards ports pastures roads etc etc then you have mines this is again you know this is the list of things which make up the body of income so this is mines gold silver diamonds gems pearls coral conch shell metal salt iron ore other ores derived from the earth rocks and liquids all these are the mineral wealth of the of the uh, country then you have a very special category which is called irrigation works now irrigation works 
are very special because provision of water, water was the elixir of life for the moderns. Remember, for agriculture, water is necessary. And agriculture was the mainstay of the modern economy. So they were very, very specific, careful, and anxious that each and every agriculturist should get water. This water was provided to huge public irrigation works. And I have been mentioning Lake Sudarshan to you. Today at Lake Sudarshan, we have an extant Mauryan large public work. One of the uh, rivers in that area was dammed up and made into Lake Sudarshan to provide water to that entire area. And there is an inscription called Rudra Daman inscription, which tells us that it was one of Chandragupta's viceroy who was called Pushyagupta, who actually had this done with state funds for the benefit of the people. So irrigation works, in fact, you know, many historians have thought of the Mauryans as a, a, a empire which depended totally on water. And the provision of water as a public good, that was the pivot of the work which was done by the Mauryans and that was how they kept their kingdom together. There's some very spurious comparisons have been drawn with the Egyptian uh, civilization and with the river Nile, etc. Many of those comparisons are spurious, but the importance of water cannot be understated. And so when they made these irrigation works, so if you make a canal or a lake or, or anything like that, you get a lot of other things apart from water. You get fish. Fish are also resources. You get vegetables. Then you get uh, certain other wet crop fields you get some root vegetables. All these things were part of the uh, so, uh, of the kingdom's uh, resources. If those irrigation works were privately owned, remember I told you everything, there was public ownership by the state, there was also private ownership. So if it was privately owned, then all these things of fish, vegetables, X, Y, Z belong to the private people. If it was the state, then it belonged to the state. Other than that, next one, Ay Sharir is forest. So enclosures for bees, deer parks, forests, elephant forests, etc. This makes sense. Then there were herds. Cows, buffaloes, goats, sheep, donkeys, camels, horses, mules. Then there were trade routes. Trade routes were water and land routes. We've discussed this in detail. So a lot of customs duties, port duty, duties, etc. were levied and these were also resources for the kingdom. Now this is the constitutes the body of income. What were, the, what were the heads of income? What were the sources of income? You know, the IMUK. So these, uh, this IMUK has been described in a particular way. So what were these? These are the different kinds of levies, taxes, etc. So for each of these heads that were there in the I Sharif, there were either their produce would be received from that or some tax would be received or some levy would be received. What were those? Those were of the following types. There was, like I told you, there was Sita, there was Bhag, there was Bali, there was Kar, there was Vanik. Then all uh, of these, if I can tell you in English, price, share, surcharge, monopoly tax, fixed tax, manufacturing charge and penalty. These were the different ways in which money was taken from all these different parts of the Ayasharid. So Ayasharid is a body of income. Ayamuk is the sources, the way in which this, this money was, this money or in kind was actually expropriated by the state. Now, all these things are pretty complex and they're pretty, um, you know, like they're going deep into economics. I tell you all this to give you a, an idea of the very, very uh, complex economic 
aspects and economic um, principles embedded in the Arthashastra. A lot of people often ask me, oh, Indians didn't know about interest or Indians didn't know about duty and they didn't know anything much about taxes. So all this is giving the lie to this kind of thing because this, remember, was how the kingdom actually gathered its resources. So I've only been talking to you about income, but there was also expenditure. But uh, before I move on to expenditure, I'm going to read out to you, read out for you the different kinds of taxes which were there during the modern period and see how many they were and how complex. There was customs duty or shulk, which consisted of import duty, export duty, and octroi. There was transaction tax, which included transaction tax for crown goods. There was share of production or bhag. Then there was tax in cash. There was tax in kind, pratikar, which included labor or vishti and ayudhya or supply of soldiers. There were also countervailing duties. I wish I had time to explain these countervailing duties to you, but this was protection, economic protection afforded to its own uh, people by the state. So countervailing duties, which were called vedharan. There was road cess, vartani, monopoly tax, which is parikha. There was also royalty. Royalty from mines, royalty from the use of resources, which was called prakriya. There was tax paid in kind by villages. There was army maintenance tax and there were surcharges. So can you see the complexity and the multiplicity of taxes? And remember, we are talking about 3000 years ago. All these concepts are there in the Arthashastra and all these taxes, duties, penalties, prices, etc. were part of the resources that the kingdom received. So this little classification, again, if you want to read, you can read Kangli and Rangarajan for the many detailed uh, descriptions of these because there are pages and pages of different kinds of custom duties, etc. Also, There were also port duties. So there is there were taxes within the domestic area. There were taxes when there were transactions with those outside the kingdom. So there were there was sales tax. There was uh, of course there was there doesn't seem to be any income tax. As an income tax professional, I've always noted that that there doesn't seem to be any income tax. But definitely a lot of excise, customs, and sales tax, and certain other kinds of taxes because they were in kind. This is as far as the I Sharir and the I book is concerned. I must also tell you about expenditure in short before I end. What were the ways of spending this money? So what is intended for the worship of gods and pitri, dev and pitri? Then there was charity. Then there, was, uh, 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 there were gifts for benedictions received, which means that there were prayers made for the king and for the kingdom. And there were gifts made for that. The royal palace, the kitchen, employment of ambassadors and envoys, the magazine, the armory, the warehouse, the store for forest produce, factories, laborers, maintenance of foot soldiers, horses, chariots and elephants, maintenance of herds of cattle, enclosures for beasts, deer, bird, wild animals and stores of fuel and grass. These constitute the corpus of expenditure. This is what money was spent on and whatever was left, the balance, it was kept in the treasury for future use. The uh, one uh, thing I must note, again, it was a question in one of the earlier talks, is were there any exemptions? So yes, there were exemptions given by giving people gifts of land. And all the duties, taxes, cess, etc. on that land was waived. So there were different categories of waiver. Sometimes you could get this 
and also it would be your own to sell sometimes you got it only for your lifetime so there were the thing is you know the kind of classification and detail in the art shaft is mind boggling i am not even able to tell you 2% of it because in one hour i cannot even tell you 2% of it i'm just trying to give you a kind of overview so there were also exemptions made to these taxes prices etc so the course was well organized it was well thought out and there was they took their resources from everywhere all parts of the economy of the time they took their resources from everywhere and they used their resources in a particular manner depending on the situation of that time the corpus of expenditure today will be a little different from what it was earlier but here you have the kosh and the dand one thing that really struck me when i read the arthashastra the first time was the examination system for the civil services that uh, that cotelia uh, you know uh, speaks about and it's totally different than what the upsc examinations we have now i mean this is a uniform one and what he sets out is a very detailed unique for every position i think uh, you know uh, it you were uh, you would have been uh, examined in the shastras uh, tanya you would have been uh, examined in our own uh, chaturdash vidyasthanam and uh, the itihas and puran and shastras that is what you would have been and the uh, vedic corpus that's what you would have been examined on and of course those different kinds of tests were also there the love test and the money test etc yes that is indeed very striking and also after they get selected the the tests that are done uh, to, ch- to check their uh, integrity and their loyalty yeah. so that's a wonderful read very very instructive very uh, uh, you know illuminating um my question is actually not so much related to the finance it's more a curious question about what happened during a a potential conflict situation like you said that the senapati's word was very important what uh, he advised would his uh, point of view have precedence over what the prime minister said or the council of ministers said how did they work around that if there was a difference with it just a curious question yes so uh, there is a lot of discussion about this because uh, differences of opinion are bound to arise so the advice given to the king is that he should listen to everyone very carefully and uh, there is uh, absolutely no precedent set in the sense that the senapati's word must be taken before this one or this one in general however it depends on domain knowledge if the senapati is talking about the army then obviously his word is more important than the prime minister's however if the prime minister is talking about the sanidhatri or about the samahatri then his word is more important but the final decision was the king's the king is enjoined to listen to everyone very carefully analyze everything very carefully and he has been trained all his life to run through this council to analyze this council and to arrive at judgment by himself by himself this is why the swami is seen as the most important prakriti by chanakya so everyone has their say mostly the idea is to have a consensus if there is no consensus possible and if there is a you know total fight then the king gets the casting vote two questions are related to each other the first one is that are our people getting inspired from our past to be more innovative in present better enterprise less self centered and better citizen 
and the related part is I put all the in the chat box also. What has been our weakness, which is continuing even now? How to avoid it and how to take country to stronger, inspired from our past greatness? Now these are actually very large questions. As far as getting inspired by the past is concerned, I think the short and the long answer is no. I don't see anyone getting inspired by the past, but I'm hopeful for the future. It's only when we know our past that we'll be inspired by it. We don't know it yet. So what is? How can we be inspired? If you haven't read the Arthashastra, how can you be inspired by it? So first, I think step one is awareness. Then only if you are aware, if you know, can you be inspired. And as to our weaknesses, that is a really large question, Surendraji. For every kingdom, for every king, there have been different points of weakness and strength. And a SWOT analysis of all the kingdoms will point to the link, the chinks in the armor in many different places. You cannot say one thing. This is the weakness across three thousand years. That's not a very useful analysis because such things do not happen. We have to do an uh, a very specific analysis, you know, like for the Mauryans. It is said that Ashok shifted his focus from security and the army and keeping keeping the kingdom strong to his own obsession with Buddhism and his kind of missionary obsession with spreading Buddhism. And then he also ruled for sixty, sixty-five, seventy years. He became very old. He was not able to keep the kingdom in control, and he did not have very good successors. They were each worse than the other. So the weakness of the Swami, the weakness of the Swami, perhaps if we are to think in terms of Prakritis, the weakness of the Swami was perhaps that thing which made the Mauryan uh, Empire uh, break apart very soon. It lasted for basically what two hundred odd years only. Yeah, I asked the the question about the task taxes, but uh, that was related to like it was uh, based on any Varna system. So, uh, so uh, Rohit, the taxes were not based on the Varna system. The, the taxation and uh, its classification was dependent on the theory of finance, not the theory of Varna. Okay. Also, there are some things which are related. For instance, the, what I told you about uh, grant of land. So, land was granted to Brahmins. It was called Brahmadev. It was granted to mm-hmm. Gurukuls. And for those who were mm-hmm. teachers and those who were intellectual leaders, and they were forgiven all taxes. So all Sita, Bhag, Kar, Bali, they were forgiven all taxes for the for them. Now also there were certain land uh, and other grants made to different levels of officials in the kingdom. Again, not related to the Varna system. But they were also forgiven different kinds of taxes depending on what reason the land was given to them, for how long it was given to them. So Rohit, everything was not dependent on the Varna system. The theory of finance, the theory of you know public finance as we call it today, public finance is not related to Varna. Public finance is a subject in itself. So uh, there is. I will take this opportunity to mention the fact that for too long has it been understood that everything in India depends on Varn, and whether you study economics or philosophy or history or sociology or uh, filmography, you must start with Varn. Please don't make this mistake. For the Kshatriyas, was there any exemptions? Like there were the fighting again. 
the exemptions were not according to what varna you were in but what activity you were carrying out so if you were a brahmin who was in the army the rules which would be applicable would be income from the army if you were a shudra who was an artisan the rules which would be applicable suppose you you were selling something then it would be rules of sales tax which are applicable there was not sales tax for shudras and sales tax for brahmins separate these were ad valorum duties and that ad valorum suppose you were a brahmin artisan for some reason and there was a shudra artisan for some reason then the same ad valorum 20% would apply to both of them so the theory of public finance was not dependent on the one constitution was the kautilya's only book or was there any other uh, uh, books so there we have many different law givers kautilya was one of them the others were manu yagyavalkya brihaspati so there were many different law systems and in different parts of the country different uh, systems were followed which is why remember when i said remember desh and kal so uh, after and before every dharma shastra what is written is that okay these are the rules we set down the rules but whatever is in local usage customary usage according to the desh and kal that comes first if there is a conflict between say people are following some kautilyan system but in the local area there is some conflict say on inheritance tax kautilya's ideas will not be taking precedence over local customary usage local customary usage was most important and we have multiple number of lawgivers and different laws operated in different places in the say you know we haven't had time to look at law and justice dharmasthiyam if we had had time to look at it we would have seen how different things operated at different levels starting from the village and the gram vriddhas and then going up to the king very only very important things went up to the king other things were all resolved at the local and what you would perhaps today call the district level or then the regional level very few things went up to the king so <clears throat> there was not a uniform system like kautilya said this and so it is no there were many different systems and uh, well there are many differences in these systems also for example relating to women yagyavalkya has a different idea and kautilya uh, and manu have different ideas so depends on what dharm shastra you are following in that area most important your own customary usage and uh, coming to the languages like they had different languages right was there any official language or something i have i will recommend you to episode number 10 of monologue there is a 15 minute section exactly on this question okay and uh, one last question is um like only the forts were protected like say the villagers were not protected and people love to stay in villages or want to there was a very uh, complicated system of protection okay each city had walls each city had boundaries and you could not enter that after uh, dark you had to stay outside those walls as far as villages were concerned villages were even more strictly protected because they knew who was there and anyone it was a small village so anyone who came in from outside first there was a system of passports there was a movement control minister there was a department of movement control and if you wanted to go from here to there to there to there you had to take passes 
and if, when you took those passes obviously your antecedents were thoroughly checked only then you were given passes also if you were just say you were a wandering minstrel you just uh, wandered around and sang songs and entered any village it was not possible for you to go wherever you wanted the village would first the village elders the gram vidhas would first vet you and see and uh, in many parts of the arthashastra you see injunctions don't let this kind of person enter don't let that kind of person come during this season you should not let this happen so there was security at every level this is a very secure and remember there were spies everywhere everyone's house everyone's farms everyone's fields everywhere there were spies so security in a, actually you know they lived in a highly um, securitized and highly uh, well espionage based society so there was a lot of security everywhere and they want to like preference wise they want to live in cities or the villages or... <laughs> that is well i am afraid there's nothing in the arthashastra about preferences but the advantages and disadvantages are given about you know this is what the fort that is a fortified city this these are the advantages and if you live in the country then these are the advantages then you decide what do you like always you know the cities are more sophisticated and there is a little bit more of culture you know even today perhaps you will get more of plays and dramas and movies etc in bigger cities and less in smaller cities so those kinds of uh, decisions which are made today by people who decide to live in cities and towns i think along similar lines decisions would have been taken then life in the city would have been easier life in the country would have been in a way tougher because cities remember were very sophisticated and very well organized and very very nice places in modern times yeah see my question is in relation uh, with the third battle of panipat which the marathas lost so uh, you know the marathas took with them a lot of civilians as well as their families their wives and all so one of the major reasons uh, reasons which is given for their defeat is that they took a lot of civilians and their wives and family along with them so does kautilya mentions anything related to the, uh, this uh, in the arthashastra so when you look at uh, i had spoken to you about the base camp so when you look at the base camp it tells you what kind of people should be there let me show you a picture of the base camp so it will give you it gives you a complete description of all the uh, kind of okay i don't know if you can read it but the kind of uh, it's just too small for me to show no so i will tell you what is there so it tells you when the king moves what kind of people should move with the king so there should be counselors prohits the army all the different kinds of armies all the different kinds of units then there should be a special group for the kings uh, you know taking care of the king his kitchen his cook his counselor everything there should be traders there should be labor etc there is a special category of courtesans as far as women are concerned courtesans for the entertainment of the soldiers however civilians families no absolutely not and nowhere in that chapter does he mention when he tells you how should the army move what should the army have and he tells you that in great detail civilians and families absolutely not 
So you mentioned that there were a lot of uh, spies in the Mauryan Empire. So I just wanted to ask, like, what if uh, someone, you know, some spy betrays? So did they had any network to keep an eye on them? So spying, espionage, double agents, agents. There are reams and reams about this. What to do if you want to send a double agent somewhere? How to check out if a double agent has come to your place? How to keep, uh, how to spy on spies? How to spy on spies, spying on spies? So the kind of intricacy is just crazy. It's like, and this is what my own book, Urnabhi, is based on. Urnabhi is Urnabhi, which is a spider's web. So the spy system of Chanakya was like a spider's web across the entire Indian subcontinent. And also in certain enemy kingdoms and in certain friend kingdoms. And again, read the section on spies. And it will answer a lot of these questions. So otherwise, this book is also available on Kindle. Read it, it will answer a lot of your questions. So uh, my protagonist is indeed a double agent who is sent into another kingdom to further moral interests. Episode 6 of Morelog, which has a lot on spies. So Kesh, she says that, uh, is Porus a historical figure? Uh, I mean, is he a true historical figure? And did he lose to Alexander? Because we've heard some contrary. Uh, no, 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 he did, he did. And uh, again, there are uh, many, very clear descriptions of that. Uh, Sukesh, I would recommend uh, an article I've written on Alexander in Swaraj magazine. It mentions the battle between Alexander and Porus. Porus was from the, Porus is the, you know, uh, Greek way of saying it. He was from the Puru dynasty. We know the Puru dynasty really well. The Purus appear in the Rig the Purus appear in the Purans. So he was the last king of the Puru dynasty. And uh, he uh, last or maybe second last because his nephew, Malay, whose name was Malay and who was a forum. Battle was a crazy one which went up and down and there were certain natural factors as well as certain differences in weapons which made Porus or Porav lose. It was something which he lost after almost winning. But nature, river, floods, rains worked against Porus as well as the length of the spears and lances that the Greeks had. That's a very interesting battle to analyze. 